G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. Eating meat is unhealthy, unsustainable, unnecessary and unethical. But largely, they're coming at this from a very emotional place. And my pushback is you can't have an intelligent, ethical debate about whether or not we should kill beautiful animals and eat them until you fully understand the nutritional and environmental importance of livestock and what harm it would do to remove it from our food system. That was Diana Rogers, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer, and in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. Diana Rogers is our wonderful guest. I caught up with Diana. She was fresh off the plane um, into Brisbane mid-July, just a couple of days before she was a, um, a speaker at the RCS Convergence Conference in Bris Vegas. Uh, she did have some meetings with MLA during sort of a, between uh, my interview and, and that conference. And then she took off on the Monday. So she's only here for about four days um, at the end of a pretty long leg of touring around the world. Uh, so very um, grateful to have um, some time with Diana. She is the author a co-author with Rob Wolf uh, of the <clears throat> the doco Sacred Cow and the book of the same name. Uh, she is a dietitian and nutritionist. I've been following her for some years now, many years. I have to say, it's probably one of, one of her sustainable dish podcasts. Is probably one of the first podcasts I actually used to you know, listen to um, back in the day when podcasts were were um, becoming a bit of a thing. Uh, fascinating stuff and. Um, I was fortunate enough to do a podcast with her recently. She interviewed me. Uh, 
and which is not the, <laughs> it's just kind of beside the point. This episode's all about Diana. Um, we traverse many topics. We couldn't avoid the the one dear to her heart, at least, um, and and certainly mine is sort of the, the whole fate meat debate. Where that's headed, what the agendas are behind it. Um, and so, actually, what I've done, I've, I've actually gone straight, for this intro, I've actually gone straight to Diana. I meant to do a bit of a Roma, which I'll do. I'll do now. I'll just finish with with Diana before we hear from her. Uh, what was I going to talk about this time? Well, it's between, it's, it's, we've had a bit of time out. Um, foot and mouth came up then and, and uh, certainly, certainly a topic. By the time you hear this, which is probably going to be late September. Um, not sure where that's all going to be up to. It's gone off. Uh, it's gone out of the news. It seems to have um, somewhat been, you know, less newsworthy, but but hopefully less of a threat. Um, cattle prices are reflecting that they're heading back up again. Um, as is, you know, springs around the corner. So that's sort of um, creating a bit of interest in the cattle market again after some, you know, not so much panic buying, but certainly some some nervousness in the in the industry. So, and Stu Austin's been doing a lot of work there um, with the MLA and keeping everyone informed, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, and I'm, you know, pleased just to, to say that I'm, I'm feeling much better about the biosecurity um, uh, uh, actions, the, what, what, the, what the government put in place for that period of time, uh, you know, in the last few months just to sort of reduce the, the threat. Um, they did a lot of work actually in Indonesia, from what I understand, to try and help them, the Indonesians, um, get on top of it and, and uh, you know, if we can reduce the risk over there, less chance of it getting over here. Because if it did get over here, it would be somewhat of a disaster. Oh, and I was going to say, I was just going to say something. Um, it won't take a minute. It's not very profound, but I just thought it was worth mentioning. You know, it sort of has been coming up in conversation a bit lately. Sort of what's next? You know, we we've um, again by the time you hear this, there might be the next thing. Uh, I hope not. But uh, with the whole Corona spicy flu debacle, you know, with what I understand, politicians sort of some running, um, you know, <laughs> jumping ship. Uh, not quite apologising, but kind of, kind of admitting that you know they may not have handled things as well as they, as they could have. Um, you know, I don't think anyone's in any in the dark about my view of all that that bullshit that went on for the last couple of years. Uh, some very interesting stats are coming out about how many people actually died of corona. Or like seriously, as opposed to all the comorbidities they might have already had and the ages that they that they were. A gentle reminder. I like that word actually. Like um, the the school <laughs> Lily goes too often sends me emails <laughs> about <laughs> saying a gentle reminder to do you know permissions for excursions or whatever. Um, but a gentle reminder that the, I'm thinking right and saying the average age of those who died, unfortunately died, we're not taking the piss out of anyone, you know, we're not, not being insensitive about that in any way. Uh, just making a point that the average age of those who died was 86, which I think was the, the irony was it was, it's actually just a smidge above the, um, the average age of death that in Australia had been for some time. So it is... It, that alone should tell people, like, just how out of proportion the response of government and health officials was to um, 
to the pandemic, and I just think it was a total, total, total overreach, you know. So it'd be interesting to see, my point being, it's going to be interesting to see what the next thing is, whether there's another health, so-called health crisis. Monkeypox was in the news there a few weeks ago. Again, you'll be hearing this some weeks down the track, so it may have disappeared altogether. Um, there'll be something else, you know. I hope not, but I guess that that's just, you know, they'll line us up for something to get all worried and fearful about and... Um, and, and take action on, uh, whether it's health. Um, I mean, the whole carbon thing is interesting. Where that's going, carbon economy, the emissions. Actually, I might mention that next time is just that whole tracking emissions stuff is really, it's fascinatingly, I won't say scary because I don't want to sort of inject fear, fear into that, but it's just, you know, very interesting what that's all, where that might be all heading, you know. Imagine if you're, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a farmer, so I'm kind of, you know, comfortable with it. We like to think we're sequestering more carbon than we're emitting um, and, and making a net you know, positive change to it all, or, um, positive input at least. But if I was a family living in a house or a unit in a um, you know, metropolitan area and our emissions as a family or individuals are starting to be tracked, which is what they're talking about, when I say they, I'm talking, you know, UN, World Economic Forum, um, all those sort of people who I don't have a whole lot of time or respect for, uh, they are talking about it and that's something that is going to be on the agenda. It's going to be, you know, floating around the mainstream media and the politicians here in Australia are going to start talking about it. Tracking your emissions and so I at least have the opportunity to kind of offset that with our grazing and our farming and what we do out here in nature. But for those in that don't have that opportunity, it's going to be very interesting to see how people potentially be penalised for their emissions and that being something for people to really worry and think about and have to consider in their buying, you know, whether it's the car they buy in the ACT, you know, I think it's in a, I'm not sure what year it is, 2030 or it might be only a couple of years away, they're pretty much banning petrol cars, the, the, the sale of new new petrol cars that all has to be electric, which is a whole other load of bollocks in itself. Um, that's another conversation. However, just going to be interesting to track all that because I just don't know whether it's heading. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. They think, oh, well, you know, tracking emissions and that's going to force people and encourage people to – it's more of a force than an encourage, by the way. It's more of a stick than a carrot um, to reduce their emissions. But, gee whiz, like, really, are we doing the audit on all of that stuff to, to actually be confident that it, that that sort of tracking of emissions of individuals and families is going to reduce emissions? I just don't think so. Anyway... For someone who wasn't going to do much of a Roma, that actually turned into a bit of a one, didn't it? Nonetheless, I trust you're still listening uh, and haven't sort of clicked on the 30-second button too much. Uh, and next up now for your listening pleasure, because I really enjoyed um, chatting with Dinah Rogers, probably did the most amount of research on anyone so far. Uh, Ten minutes, not five, from for this guest, Dinah Rogers on The Regenerative Journey, and I trust you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Diana Rogers, welcome to The Regenerative Journey and welcome to your room in apartment block, I don't know where we are, Ivy and Eve in Bris Vegas. Did you know they call it Bris Vegas up here? I did not know it's that. very similar to Las Vegas. Oh. No, not really. They just call it Las Vegas. And Mel Vegas in Melbourne. That's just like, you know, for the cool and groovy people, they call it Bris Vegas. <clears throat> and there's a um, game of rugby league. On tonight, State of Origin. I heard that I'm going to be able to hear it from this room. Really? Is it that close? Well, it's probably 10 miles away and then they you still hear it, though. Well, there's probably just guys in the pubs and stuff, too, right? <laughs> it's, it's just going to be like... 
can I warn you, unless you maybe just don't go out after about 9 o'clock tonight. I know. No, because there'll be... Because there'll be either bloody-nosed um, blue jersey wearers or vice versa. Actually, both. They're probably all going to have blood noses. Uh, it's a decider. So let's get into it. How do we get into the rugby league already? Um, very excited, um, Diana, to be sitting with you in your room. We did start downstairs. There was a pool party. <laughs> not, not, not us. Um, I booked a room and got set up, was a little late, Diana was very patient, got there, just getting into it, and then a whole bunch of kids turned up and went bananas. And so we, we've shifted to Diana's room, um, which she promised she wasn't weird about, but, but a stroke of good fortune. That's right. So, yes, as we were walking into the um, elevator with all your camera, your, all your equipment, yeah, yeah. I was mentioning to you that when I was making my film, um, we would, I would be traveling with my camera crew and my sound guys, and we would always use Airbnbs. So because after you do all the shooting, then you have all this extra work to do to make copies of all the, you know, drives and all that. Um, and so I would always notify the owner of the Airbnb that we were legitimate. We were not there. It wasn't just a, you know, woman with three or four guys with camera equipment up to no good. And it just so happened that we were, you and I were in the elevator with the manager of the hotel. Gavin. Yes, Gavin. And he heard that story and apologized that it was so noisy and is going to refund you your money for the rental of that room. So that is correct. And what a stroke of good fortune it was. <laughs> Gavin. Gotta love Gav. Um, but I had to thank Diana for actually mentioning the story, which got Gavin sort of saying, well, I'm a manager of the hotel and I've had that thing before. Anyway, so we got. We got through, we're up here, we've got a bit of a view, we've got a bit of an echo too, which Reese, my sound man, um, trusty sound man Reese, who's actually living in Brisbane at the moment, can't see him out there, but um, he's going to sure fix it up in, in post. Um, my, that's a rant. I've done five minutes of rant before I actually got into the interview before Donna, so we're not breaking any records just yet. And Donna's very kindly lent, um, you may notice a different video quality, probably better video quality, quality for you guys on the YouTube <clears throat> because we're using her Zencaster program. It's a bloody good idea. I should get that. It's nice. It's convenient. Well, it's because I always have a whole lot of um, uh, memory problems on my phone. You know, like literally, it'll be halfway through an interview and go, "Sorry, out of memory." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's convenient for me because my podcast editor actually lives in Hawaii, so she you can, can just, just download everything right from Zencaster. So good. Okay, let's get into it. Um, so we are in Brisbane, and how I usually start my interviews with is sometimes a bit of a whatever intro to what's happened. Mm-hmm. This is the first time we've had um, a, a pool party to do with, but I usually have, speak with my guests in their happy place, their farm, their garden, their place of work, yada yada. And this is not necessarily your happy place. We're in a hotel room in Brisbane, which is very long way from where you live, but you're here for a reason. So I set the scene and kind of, you know, get my guests into a comfortable state <laughs> talking about their happy place, but we can't do that. So you're going to be on your, on, you're going to be nervy the whole interview. This is actually my very first day in Australia ever in my life. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. 
Really? Mm-hmm. In, and you've come to Brisbane and you're here for four, four, four days? Yeah, I leave on Monday. Got the, you've got the RCS conference coming up on Saturday, Sunday? Correct. Very exciting. I bang on about RCS are the sponsors of this podcast. Well, they might be. We might have to cut this bit. They were for season five. They were for season five. I'm yet to hit them up for season six yet. <laughs> so well, I'm a big fan of their counterpart in the US, so Ranching for Profit. I think that their whole approach and, uh, I mean, the farmers that I featured in my film that switched from conventional to regenerative were Ranching for Profit um, a lot of them. Uh, disciples Yeah, and couldn't stop and actually, we filmed a little bit of a ranching for profit workshop when, um, as part of the film. And who is the principal over there at the moment? Because I know um, Stan Parsons sort of kicked it off over there many mm. years ago. So it was Dan uh, David Pratt David is Pratt. who I interviewed, but then he retired. Mm. So there's a younger guy that's taken the helm, and I'm forgetting his name. But there'd be a few of them because over here, RCS have well, Terry McCosker, who I interviewed some months ago. Um, he was, and he's got obviously many um, members of the business, and they run grazing for profit courses and grazing and farming for profit and grazing clinics. They run a whole lot of stuff. It's fantastic, and I did many years through their system, so I'm very comfortable with them. So you're here for RCS. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, you're speaking on day one or two, Saturday, Sunday, Saturday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. And you've got a bit on between now and then because we're a few days out from the weekend. You've already told me what's going on. And can we say who you're having dinner with tomorrow night? Can yeah. we give him a wrap? Oh, sure. Um, I, I'm having dinner with uh, Dr. Pran Yoganathan, who is a GI doctor in Sydney um, that I actually met on Instagram. Um, and his philosophy aligns perfectly with mine. He recently bought a lot of property to yeah. become... I think, I think we can say that. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Yeah. It was a, like a, a reasonable holding um, in northern New South Wales, and I'm going to interview him at, at his farm. Lovely he, bloke. He's wonderful, and I did a podcast with him, and, um, yeah, really excited to see him. So he's coming up to Having, the conference. Yeah, to, that's yeah. news. Um, Pran, you didn't tell me, mate. But anyway, I'll see you on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So let's say so you're here and you're all, this is sort of your first um, trip to Australia and it won't be your last, I'll give you the tip. And also this is the end of quite a tour you've been on. I've been, yeah, and I actually I was supposed to go to Argentina in a couple of weeks after this, um, but their economy is um, imploding right now really? and yeah so that got cancelled and i'm going to just zoom in for the, that ca- one. the country got cancelled can- <laughs> <laughs> did it it's getting cancelled as we speak yeah they're uh the inflation just went bananas really yeah i don't watch much tv or news or any mm-hmm. any, any mainstream stuff so I, I have not heard that mm. so that's off yeah i was really looking forward to going but i was um this all started just as soon as covid ended I got so many invites, which is great because Mm. as I was wrapping up the film, I was invited to like 15 different countries to screen it. And I didn't make any money on the film, but to be able to travel and (laughs) well, that was like the perk. That was like the carrot at the end was Mm. just to be able to travel and see so many great places and be hosting screenings everywhere. 
And that didn't happen because of COVID. And so I was doing a lot of virtual screenings and virtual talks, and it's just not the same. Um, And so I kicked off in May. I went down to Brazil to a methane conference in Sao Paulo. Really? Yeah. And um, Frank Mitloner was there and a bunch of other experts. And I got to tour a little bit of um, the country and and saw some cattle production, like really big scale cattle production. in the state of Sao Paulo and some really cool research facilities where they're testing different silvopasture methods and different forages on, you know, methane and biodiversity and all that. And then I went to England and did an event. Well, I went to the rewilding project at Nep Castle, which was very interesting. And then I did a conference in London and then I went to Patrick Holden's dairy farm in Wales and got to drive around Wales for a little bit afterwards, which was beautiful. Mm. looks a lot like New Zealand, actually. Sir Patrick Holden. He's a sir. Sir Patrick Holden. He's a sir. Yeah. He d- I don't think he gets offended if we don't call him sir. I don't think he's like that. <laughs> Some people would He's be. not. And his, oh, it was so wonderful. I got to see his whole operation and the cheese that he makes. And we ate some. And I actually stayed in a tiny house on his farm, which was so fun. Mm. Um, Beautiful part of the world, wow. Yeah. Oh, it was like being in Game of Thrones. <laughs> I was actually rewatching Game of Thrones every evening um, while I was in Wales just to like really get into it. Did it scare you? Like, did you like not want to go outside in the dark? <laughs> Otherwise, when those dead things would come and get you? Well, the funny thing is, they, I mean, there's castles every single direction mm. you look in constantly and dragon flags everywhere and gargoyles all over the castles. And I mean, it really. Mm. It really felt like I was in Game of Thrones. It was really cool. <laughs> um, he's a lovely bloke and a, in a wonderful part of the world. Um, and then, so then you went, where'd you go then? Then I did, I don't even remember. I did a conference in between. I think I was in Kansas in between. Yeah, you went to back a, like to the States, camper, I think. Conference. Yeah. And then I went back over to the UK for Groundswell, which is a Regenag mm. conference um, just outside of London, um, which was mostly focused on arable um, like no till, mm. but that was really cool. And I got to see some of the people that I saw on my first trip. And then I was home for like two weeks and then I went to New Zealand. Mm. So I was, I've been, uh, I was in New Zealand for almost two weeks and just arrived in Brisbane today. In Brisbane. Um, and you were over there. So my, my point is that you've been, you've been on the road for a lot in the last two months. I have. Why? Why? I mean, obviously there was, you know, the invitations after the, after the mm-hmm. documentary, Sacred Cow, and it came out. Remind me, was it May last year? No, when was it? Uh, when did it come out? Was um, it a year before? All the, the last two years have been a blur. It's been about a year and a half since it's been out. Yeah, um, right. And, but really, I think people are just interested in how I approach this whole messy anti-meat narrative. So as a dietitian, I talk about the health benefits of meat and why there's zero studies directly showing that meat causes cancer or heart disease or diabetes or all the evil things that it's accused of. But then I also um, talk about the environmental impacts of livestock and when it's raised well, how it can be an environmental benefit. I, I dive into ethics. So I do a lot of work on my social media. Um, but through my presentations, I really try to pump up farmers. And it, they're just, as you know, um, under so much scrutiny right now. And I've really seen this 
anti-meat narrative play out differently in every country I've been to. So in Brazil, they're largely now going to more feedlot finishing because the cattle live less, so therefore emit less methane. Ah, so that's the thing. That's the that's the general idea. Mm. Yeah, is there is that is that a valid kind of approach? I mean, so they still spend the majority of their life on pasture, right? And and there is a lot of crop residue that these cattle can eat when they're on a feedlot that have no other use in our food system. So things like, and depending on where in Brazil you are, it might be uh, sugarcane leftovers from the ethanol industry or, you know, in the U.S. it's corn stalks from our ethanol industry. Um, So that stuff is going to sit in a pile and emit methane whether or not it's turned into protein through an animal. So I'm not 100% against that. Um, Even in my film, when um, my film Sacred Cow the the farmers in Mexico that I went to on Las Damas Ranch in Chihuahua, he's doing amazing regenerative grazing. He's completely turning this desert back into grasslands again. His cattle are sold to feedlots at the end um, because he just can't finish them properly. He can't, it, you know, it works out better for him financially. And so there's still amazing regenerative grazing that can happen before feedlot finishing. So I try to be very nuanced and contextual when I talk about, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of these purists that thinks you should only eat regenerative beef or be a vegan kind of thing. And I, I know there's people like that out there. Um, so I advocate that, you know, meat is incredibly healthy. No one should be forced to give it up and that um, people should just buy the, the best meat they can afford. They should connect with the farmer and try to buy directly if they can. And, um, you know, there's lots of different ways it can be done. And I think even, you know, feedlot finishing can have a place in our food system because it's regenerative, purely regenerative beef is such a small percentage of our total beef supply right now. It is. Um, <clears throat> I mean, as you say, it's it's more about having meat in the diet, you know, clean, clean meat, let's just say, mm-hmm. um, to keep it simple, than none. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's there's lots of evidence, and you're you're a big advocate for having meat in the diet. So, and I think I tend to agree that, you know, I like to think that you know all cattle are going to finish their life on grass before they get consumed by appreciate you know people who appreciate it. That would be lovely. The reality is that um, uh, given the dynamics, the supply, the, the demand, you know, where that is in the US, you know, mm-hmm. where it is in China, um, I think eighty percent of the meat in Australia gets exported. So, is before I understand. So, you know, it's it's um, something we can all kind of aspire to, perhaps. But it's not like going to go tomorrow. It's all over. You know, we feedlots are going to shut down um, because the system we're working in is that's just that's just what it is at the moment. Um, and I'm not saying I'm a big fan of feedlots, but I'm just sort of I kind of sit with you in that that. Um, that's just the reality of it. We can we can kind of you know as I said aspire to uh, to changing that and then creating the demand and getting more on directly to a plate in you know and, and that and that those animals finished finished on grass. Um, a lot of people argue you can't finish animals on grass on the coast of Australia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know they, they've got to be they're supplemented on farm or they go somewhere else. So let's oh, I want to get back to all that because that's a lot of I mean and, and and I'll make the point you're not just about meat either. You're 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 a nutritionist, you know, you know a whole lot of other stuff about mm-hmm. um 
Food. Food. Mm-hmm. I was watching a an interview. I never liked Kanye West. <laughs> I saw him at a concert years ago and he, I just thought, what a tool. However, I saw an interview with him, David Letterman, the other day. Oh, really? Oh, it changed my whole... My you whole... know, he's a bison farmer, David Letterman. Is he? Mm-hmm. Good on him. Mm-hmm. He's a big, lanky guy, isn't he? Yeah, up Very... in Montana. Good on him. Um, he looks like a bit of a bison, that big beard he's got on him now. I'm trying to look like him. Um so, and anyway, Kanye was, uh, David said, you know, something about diet and, you know, eating. And he said, I don't call it diet, I call it, what's that? You just pause for a moment? Yeah, no, no, we just Your keep editor. going. We just keep rolling. Well, I'm just, um, it looked like it stopped. Oh, it did. That's all right. Success. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, we can string it together. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the internet went off. Yeah, I think that might have happened. Let's see. That's right. Well done for picking that up. Three, two, one. We're back. We're back. Uh, part two. Oh, no, we're not part two. I might have to split this into two parts. Um, anyway, David so. David Letterman. David Letterman, yeah. So Kanye was saying um, he doesn't call it diet, he calls it live it or life it. Life oh. it because he doesn't like the word die. I think he's a vegan. Is he? Did he talk um, at all about food? He didn't. Okay. He just said in terms of his. Um, how he kind of, he, you know, use of language and, and words mm. is very important. But that's a good point. I didn't know. He didn't say that he was. Maybe he knew that David was a bison farmer. He didn't want to have that argument. Maybe. Yeah, if I had my phone on me, I'd, I'd quickly search that <laughs> one. But. Well, I do have my phone on me because I'm not using it to record this. Yeah. But I won't. Um, now, back to, so. But it is, like, I, I talk about, like, a holistic approach to living overall. And I mm. think. A lot of people that are in this, um, you know, I started out in the in sort of paleo community and and I know that has like very strong reactions from some people. But basically, it's this whole idea that we are living so differently than how we did live as sort of hunter gatherers and that we evolved eating a certain way and with a certain level of exposure to sunlight and sleep and movement and all these things. And not that we have to go back to caveman living, but we should try to mimic that as much as possible because modern life is much closer to feedlot living. Yes. Um, so we, <laughs> you know, is, we we're um, you know eating lots and lots of grains. We're restricting movement. Um, we're not getting the sun exposure that we normally should get. Um, and so, if we can try to eat a diet that's closer to what we evolved eating and um, and live closer to that way in harmony with nature, all that kind of stuff, um, it's just going to be a healthier way to live. And that's why a lot of people in my community, uh, my nutrition community, immediately understand the idea behind regenerative agriculture because it just makes total sense. So they didn't get into this necessarily just for weight loss and for vanity purposes. They really kind of have this whole worldview um, that's completely in line with all the regenerative farmers I've met. And um, oh, I was going to say, paleo was, uh, back to that one, mm. like, I guess it's it's about principles, isn't it? As you say, it's like, well, there was sunshine that we used to get. There was the diet we, you know, theoretically, and there's lots of kind of um, evidence to suggest what our diets used to be, and just logic would say that, you know, a lot of it's going to be meat. Um, and it's it's really about um, finding what 
sort of suits you, suits suits your budget. And I mean, I yeah, I'm not. I mean, I kind of get the whole paleo thing, but for you know, for ones that they don't eat beans, is it beans they don't eat or something? Well, and it doesn't need to be that dogmatic. And I'm, I'm but some quite are, flexible. and they're really on it. Yeah, you know? so I'm I'm not dogmatic about it. I just think, you know, it, um, we should just be trying to live as close as we can, but still enjoy the comforts of the modern world, right? Like I enjoy heat. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll eat some Roof. dessert sometimes, mm. uh, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, so I'm not, um, I think people extreme sell and I think um, mm. people can get extreme about lots of things and um, I try to be as balanced as possible. But when you look at um, hunter-gatherer societies, people have survived and thrived on a wide variety of different types of foods. So we have like the Maasai and the um, Inuit that were largely animal source foods, but then the Catavans were largely roots and tubers with Mm -hmm. um, a smaller amount of animal source proteins um, just because, you know, closer to the equator, you just have more access to those types of foods. Um, So it's, it's really once we introduce ultra processed modern foods that you see everyone's health start to just, completely go off the rails um, and and modern modern culture in general, right? So, well, Western A. Price, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot in there, isn't there, in terms of his studies and, you know, I guess he was talking about he, you know, a lot of, lot of the, the, the jaw and the teeth, the development and the cranial development and all that sort of stuff. It's fascinating the work he did, isn't it, identifying that? Totally. I uh, That book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Western A. Price, just looking at those pictures of people on a more primitive diet versus a more modern diet and seeing the narrowing of the jaw. And then when you look at um, like professional athletes and you see like they are the perfect human specimen. Right. And 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 they can a lot of them can get by eating whatever they want because they just have the most perfect genetics. But if you look at their jaws, they have like these perfect dental arches and everything. Um and especially those of us of like UK European descent, we have very narrow jaws, um, and it actually like messes with our sinuses. It messes with our breathing, and you know even pinches things like in our brain that we need. I interviewed um, Dr. Ron Ehrlich, who's a dentist, mm. and he told me. I want to forget all the detail now, but he told me about the um, sleep and. There was a um, very specific, and I'm going to forget the detail, thing about the jaw. Mm-hmm. The jaw was impacting the sleep and then the nasal and, 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 and breathing. It causes it attention um, issues in children. Yes, that's yep. what it was. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, doctor, that I've forgotten that one. I've quoted it many times and it's, I don't know, I've got brain fog. Um, However, yeah, it was fascinating. And then someone, the really lovely thing was someone said, hey, I listened to your podcast. I heard that bit. I went to my doctor. I went to someone and I said, hey, why don't we look at this thing about the jaw and the alignment? That's what it was, the mm-hmm. jaw alignment because mm-hmm. it was throwing everything out. And this lady's daughter was cured of of this sleep apnea, I think it was. It wasn't a sleep apnea, but it was something yeah. sinusy and, and sleep related. Yeah. It was yeah. so cool. And it also helps them because they're getting more oxygen than it helps them in school. Totally. Um, you know, a really cool guy you could interview. I love sleep re- researchers. They're like some oh, yeah. of my favorite people to talk to. Tell me. Dr. Sachin Panda. 
is his name. Doctor. I have to write that down. Sachin. Panda. Panda. Oh, Sachin. Dr. Panda. Panda. I've been to several conferences with him, and he's Hmm. a, like, dorky sleep nerd. Is he in the States? Yeah, he's in, I believe, in the um, Palo Alto area. Mm. I think he might be affiliated with Stanford. I'm not sure. But um, he goes around, and he looks at light and sleep and its impact on our overall health. And uh, he's a he's a wonderful presenter. I can mm. I can share with you some pres- presentations he's done. Well, I reckon um, I'm going to head to the states. <clears throat> don't know when, maybe next year. <clears throat> so offline, um, I will love to chat with you about who else. I've got a bit of a short list already. Oh, and I wonder, so I wonder, many people. Yeah, that's so good because I can. I mean, maybe maybe I'll do like a US season. Great, just US because I haven't done any virtuals yet. Okay. I haven't done any. I've only, this is like my 60th in, in, um, episode or something, so not many. Um, however, I just love the – even if sitting in a hotel room in Brisbane, um, I'd like much rather do this sort of interview than, than on the machine. Um, so going to go to the States. What sh- oh, no, we, we're so not going where I needed to go. That's okay. We need to go. <laughs> no, this is, this is so good. Um, <laughs> there are no rules in this in this game, you know that. Um now tell me, let's go back to your journey, or dare I say regenerative mm-hmm. journey. Um, no, I how, how far back do you want to go? Well, like when you were born, where, were you, where, where did that happen? I am from eastern Long Island. Um, I actually grew up in the Hamptons, like really? outside of New York City. That's quite smart there, isn't it? Kanye West and Kardashian people type Really? They're your vacation. <laughs> They were your neighbours? I grew up right in the middle of all of that. Really? Mm-hmm. Good for you. Um, and, but I was really sick as a kid, and I didn't know that it was undiagnosed celiac disease until I was in my mid-20s. And so I was, I had low muscle tone. Uh, basically, I was incredibly malnourished, so that's why I'm just so passionate about, especially childhood nutrition and making sure kids get access to the nutrients they need. Um, and it really affected me a lot, like not only just physically, um, but also mentally, I like words would spin on pages. Um, it's one of the reasons I was an art major undergrad is because I couldn't really read or write very well. Um, and so I got through all of high school without actually reading a book. I would just make like really cool paintings of what I thought the book was about. And I was so good at that that they just kind of let me. But tests and like rote learning information. I mean, I had like basic. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but. You weren't a bookworm. I was not. Mm. I was a very outside kind of kid. In fact, Mm. there was, um, uh, one of my siblings was really bookish and I was convinced that I I didn't actually belong in my family because I was so different (laughs) from the rest of them. I just wanted to be outside covered in dirt all the time. So were you when you were a kid? In the Hamptons, is that like country or was there access to? Yeah, lots of beaches and my dad would take, my favorite memory actually is um, my dad would take me clamming and there'd be a bunch of kids and the dads would go off with clamming, digging for clams. And we would play like basically Lord of the Flies or Star Wars on the beach and um, and just build a big fire. And we would be just left alone for hours and hours and hours and hours on the beach. And funny enough, my bookworm brother, it's his. it was his worst memory as a kid because he was like, white skin, fair, red hair, and just would burn and the insects would get him and he just wanted to be inside. 
But for me, that was my, that was my like really happy place. So is he like, <clears throat> what was in um, Lord of the Flies? Book, B- Piggy? Was it, what was the guy that got, was it Piggy? <laughs> I don't in Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and they had the conch. I still say that. Like when it says, I've got the conch, shut up, my turn. Um, uh, anyway, so, so um, af- after college, I got a job. I was working for National Public Radio in, in the States. So I had a new health insurance company and I had a new doctor that um, I went and had a physical with. And she spent an extra long time with me, just asking me a lot of questions that no other doctor had really asked. And she... I'm just going to adjust that so we can see your beautiful face. Oh. It'll be better than... Come over this way a little bit more. Okay. So I just... So I just... I should have done that the first time, shouldn't I? There we are. Good. <laughs> um, and so she said, how's your digestion? And I was like, oh, it's probably just nerves. It's never quite right. And she tested me and I was positive for celiac disease. And Age I... Age what? 26. Really? So you did 26 years of chowing down on pizza and pasta. I was eating gluten, <clears throat> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But then what happened was I went I went to a dietitian um, in Boston who was an expert in celiac disease, and she just gave me a bunch of coupons for gluten-free bread and gluten-free pizza and gluten-free brownies and all these things. So I just went from like my kind of low-fat, you know, largely vegetarian, although I did eat some meat, uh, high carb kind of bread ish diet to a gluten free version of that. So I just had like gluten free toast for breakfast, gluten free sandwiches for lunch, gluten free pasta for dinner, maybe a gluten free beer and a gluten free cookie. And so my gut problems were largely fixed, although they were still kind of bothering me. But my blood sugar was just on this roller coaster and I did not know what was going on. And I kept going to doctors demanding that they test me for diabetes because I thought like there's something wrong. I shouldn't have to eat every 15 minutes basically. And if I, you know, if lunch was delayed, I'd start like sweating and I'd have tunnel vision. I mean, I was just really a mess. And um, so it wasn't until I read this book called The Paleo Solution by Rob Wolf, who is uh, now Robert, yes. yeah, um, who was now my co-author with Sacred Cow and um, probably my best friend. Mm. Um, so uh, it wasn't until I read that book that it really all sunk in that you know maybe I shouldn't be eating this much processed food and I should just be focusing largely on meat and vegetables. So I thought it was a crazy, crazy, crazy idea, but I decided why not? And so like, what's 30 days, right? Uh, Worst case, I go 30 days without some gluten-free pasta, which isn't really that great anyway. (laughs) Um, And it changed my world. Like I went from like Alice in Wonderland or uh, Dorothy, whatever, Oz, black and white to color. It really just shifted everything for me. So that was in my early 30s. Um, and that's when I decided to go back to school to become a dietitian, to change my career and um, try to make sure other people didn't totally feel terrible like I did all the time. So essentially you took out, um, you took out the processed stodge, which mm-hmm. was like might as well have been gluten because it probably wasn't doing you much good anyway. Lots of sugar, lots of preservatives, lots of other gump in there. And and kept it simple. Yeah. Yep. And you were eating, as Michael Pollan says, eat what your grandmother would recognise, your great-grandmother. Yeah. So paleo is a little bit deeper than that, like yeah. my great-great-great-great-great. So you went quite paleo then in, the, in this? In, in the early days, yeah, I went. Um, you were trying to impress Rob with your dedication. 
<laughs> yeah, so, I mean, still, like, breakfast is largely um, eggs, maybe some ham or some leftover steak from the night before. Lunch might be a big salad with um, some fish, um, but, like, a pretty large serving of protein with that. Maybe some avocado or a little cheese. And then dinner is largely, um, you know, a pretty hefty serving of, of animal protein and then vegetables, maybe a little potato. Um, and if I'm out, I'll have a drink or, um, you know, sometimes a few bites of someone's dessert or something. So I'm not uh, zealot about it at all, but um, I feel so much better when I really stick within like the zip code or I don't know what, how you would call it, but like the, the general vicinity of uh, a largely paleo type diet. And not everybody has to eat that way. I don't think everybody has to eat that way, but I think most people largely feel way better when they eat that way. And certainly for people with an autoimmune disease like celiac, or even with a lot of other autoimmune diseases, it really helps you uh, manage the autoimmune disease much better. I interviewed <clears throat> two weeks ago um, Cherie Gooding, who you'll meet. Make sure I, interview, I introduce you to Cherie in, at the conference. And she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when she was mm. five. Five. She got Ross River fever, I think it was. And pain, swollen joints, the whole thing, in boots at night to make sure joints were growing properly and everything. And she had her ups and downs through that period of time and then not dissimilar, you know. Um, do you do dairy, dairy at all? I I don't do a ton of dairy, but I do a little dairy here and there. Yeah. So she's off dairy, um, off gluten, um, just watches like a hawk everything she eats, um, but still enjoys food. Mm-hmm. Um Yes, yeah, so dairy's off and gluten. I think they're the two main ones. And not a whole lot oh, potatoes, no. She has sweet potato and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. um, it's, there's a bit of a theme there, you know, and that's, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. When you have, you don't need to give me all the detail, but when you have a bit of gluten accidentally or something, oh. you, what happens? Not good? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's like uh, seafood poisoning, if you oh, can really? imagine that. So pretty bad. Yeah, wow. Um, but then I also have these pretty intense, um, and actually Rob Wolf has a pretty similar um, reaction to me. Um, so it's I get this really weird neurological thing going on where my brain feels like it's full of cotton balls and I just can't, I can't work and I can't think, like I can't make this, I, everything, yeah, really bad though. Wow. Um, Can we bring that forward a bit, you reckon? Yeah. Can I? Yeah, just you. you maybe your your it's your bit of tech there. That's better. Let's yeah. do that. That's okay. Um, so, so try. So you did the training. You did did did. You know, went back to school basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you had to read some books then. Yeah. So because you could. And it's funny. Yeah. So I never really had to study undergrad. Art majors don't really do a whole lot of. Um, tests and things like that. (laughs) Um, But I not only studied and did well, but I got an A in every single course because I had to. Well, one, I was highly motivated and interested and it was my own money that I was paying. um, But also it's very competitive to get an internship. So dietitians have to go through all the coursework and then you have to get these internships and there's not enough internships uh, in the U.S., for dietetic candidates. So a lot of people will study and then they'll never even become a dietitian because they can't get into an internship. Um, and so that was, 
I was highly motivated. So I got an A in everything, like biochemistry. Got biochem. Um, that's tough. It was really hard. Um, but I, um, you know, a lot of the information is very outdated um, or just flat out wrong. Um, and so I just kind of had to just tick the boxes. Um, and a lot of people will think, well, dietitians just have to say whatever they learned. And that's not true. So as long as I have evidence to show that what I'm saying is correct, like meat does not cause cancer. It does not cause cancer. Um, and I have proof that, well, there is no proof. And Mm. so, um, I can say things like butter is not going to kill you. Butter is yummy. Butter is delicious. Mm. It's a real food. Mm. Um, and you know, so, but a lot of people are discouraged by the, education dietitians get and they'll they'll not do the the coursework but you know it really lets you work more closely with doctors and can really get your foot in the door to help a lot of people well i guess that's the thing isn't it's like you need the the credentials to then um as you say help people and, and actually make a difference in the world you know and i'm sure there's lots to do the course and kind of just wrote learn and kind of regurgitate that kind of a way of thinking? Is that, is that really fair I'm to so, say? You know, I've always been interested in nutrition, even before I was diagnosed with celiac, because I knew something was making me sick and I thought it was food related, but I wasn't sure. Um, there was actually one year that I wrote down every single thing I ate and how it made me feel, because I was trying to figure <laughs> out like what was wrong with me. Um, but uh, I'm glad I didn't do it right out of the gate when I was super young, because I would have. it's really hard to unlearn things. So I was already sort of woke to ancestral eating when I became a dietitian. So you could kind of not filter, but you could kind of, that's your reference point. I was skeptical Yeah, okay. Everything. Well, that's very, well, I guess that was, a, that was a good way to do it, wasn't it? Yeah, and I had friends that would help me. Um, one chemist at, at Harvard in particular that um, would, you know, send me the right papers or explain the difference between folate and folic acid to me. Um, so when the, the professors were saying we need to you know, get our folic acid, it's really folate that we need. So, I mean, basically in every case where there's a nutrient in animal source foods versus plant source foods, our bodies need the animal source one. Because we can't make it ourselves and we can't convert or we can't, from the plant-based kind of stuff. So some people can do it better than others and there's genetic reasons why, but like, for example, vitamin A is retinol, that's the form we use it in. In sweet potatoes, it's beta carotene, which some people can make the conversion to retinol easily, but about half of all people can't. Really? So that's why, like, some people might do better eliminating animals than others. Uh, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, where was it going with that one there? I was going to try and steer towards um, farming. Yeah, was I was I was, but. Because there's so much to talk about. That's the thing. You yep. know, all these, look at these little questions here. <laughs> that is the most research I've done on any of my guests. Oh. Ever. Which is only, a, that's only like a page. I want to get too careful. Well, I'm happy to talk about the tangential interest in organic farming that happened at the same time. Yeah, let's do that one. Because I've got my, I want to know your, because um, <clears throat> now you are the second person, guest I've had who's been interviewed by Joe Rogan. Oh, really? Yes. The other one was Joel Saddleton. Oh. Who was my first or second interview ever um, a couple of years ago? Was it two years ago now? So, yeah, a bit over two years ago. And, or three, I can't remember. Um, 
so why was I talking about him? Uh, oh, yeah, because um, I was listening to that the other day and the whole regenerative farming, like, definition are kind of, you know, there are those, I guess, you know, zealots and there's those who are kind of... Um, and a lot of people go, what's the difference between biodynamics and, and regenerative mm. farming or permaculture and regenerative farming? And it's like, for me, it's kind of all the same thing, just a different way of saying it and different layers and whatever. But what's your definition of... Um, not not strictly, but like, what's your kind of the way you see regenerative farming having? No, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, because people were asking me that in New Zealand, and I guess everyone's trying to figure out: are they certified, and what does it mean? And there's a lot of zealots, right? And um, I think the older you get, the more context and nuance, and kind of like laid back you are, and you can kind of just see the big picture and realize it's just not a big deal, like we should be farming in a way that improves the environment period. Right. And so the organic farmers in the seventies, um, you know, the, the, the original back to the land guys in the U S they, or UK or wherever that was their intention. Right. And then it kind of got co-opted, whatever. And then the word sustainable came into practice and and I use the word sustainable dish and people criticize me because sustainable is outdated and that means status quo and no the new word is regenerative and and so I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm like well yeah regenerative dish doesn't sound as good as sustainable (laughs) dish and which is your podcast which you've been doing for how many years now oh I don't even know long time yeah Yeah. yours is one of the first podcasts I listened to actually just when, just when the when podcasts started being a thing, you know, it was like that was yeah, it was years ago now. Um, yeah, so you were getting so that so yeah, like so there was like where, what are you? Yeah, I just think like we should just be leaving things better than how we found them, and be aware that humans can be incredibly destructive, or we can leave the world better. And so, why not with our short time here, do good. And so farming should do good. Food production should do good, but it should also be financially sustainable for the farmer and it should work for their family dynamics. And I mean, there's that's what I love about ranching for profit is they really kind of um, help the farmers not only be environmentally sustainable, but also uh, like make it work for them so that it's like a viable business because you can't have a sustainable regenerative farm if it's not also um, financially successful. Oh, and the people need to be happy. You know, there's a big, big, people big need to have a good quality oh, of people, life. And yeah, yeah um, exactly. And, and having lived on farms for a very long time, I know how much work it is and how bad your quality of life can be because farmers work all the time. Um, so it all has to work. It can't just be like sequestering carbon. So what more on the sort of, <clears throat> I guess that's a good, um, demarcation between sustainable and regenerative, not really that, but, you know, I I think it's great that you're not, um, you're comfortable with that because there are some who go, they're actually on both ends of the spectrum, they're going, no, it's not sustainable, it's regenerative. And then there are those who really get upset with the use of the word regenerative because it's being overused and, you know, people say, I'm not regenerative, but I'm you know, biodynamic, or, or yeah, whatever. all sorts of other things. Yeah, yeah it's really it's, it's not getting divisive, but it's kind of um, there is there is there's dogma around that, isn't there? Yeah, and it's like people, life is short, and 
I'm just happy to be here and I'm happy to know cool food producers that are making the land healthier. And that's cool if they want to be biodynamic or, or whatever they want to call it. That's great. But livestock should be part of it for sure. Um, there is no animal-less ecosystem in the world. And so I, there just needs to be that, that interaction between um, animals moving and uh, and plant growth, basically. Can we talk about that? <clears throat> da, na, 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 na. The, like, um, what is because you're known, uh, you know, um, a la a sacred cow, and um, uh, and you're sort of, I guess, what you're a lot of what you're focusing on in the, over the last couple of months in your appearances at different conferences is is your sort of your your advocacy on um, eating meat and its importance in diet and balance and that sort of thing. What is, what is the, um, what's the vegan elevator pitch that is, that you hear, like keep it brief because it could be a 12-hour conversation. You know, like what is the, the main, let's say arguments because often is an argument um, that. I've gotten it pretty down. Yeah, I would have thought oh, so. Yeah. So, so hit mean, it with me. Yeah. Hit it, so hit it. Uh, eating meat is unhealthy, unsustainable, unnecessary, and unethical. But largely, they're coming at this from a very emotional place. And my pushback is you can't have an intelligent, ethical debate about whether or not we should kill beautiful animals and eat them until you fully understand the nutritional and environmental importance of livestock and what harm it would do to remove it from our food system, both Ethically, when you're talking about at-risk people that need those nutrients and, and how kind of elitist it is to be running around telling everyone that they shouldn't eat meat because you're uncomfortable with beautiful cattle dying for people to eat them, um, but also their impact on the environment and how, I mean, the, my biggest door opener with anti-meat people uh, is often just you know, if we remove livestock, 60% of our agricultural land would not be able to be used. That Because they don't get that. They don't even know. They just think we can start growing um, GMO soy on the on rangelands. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe in Australia, people, because so much of your land is not arable, maybe people get that a little bit more. But in the U.S., you, you fly over the U.S., you look down, it's just squares and circles, mm. and you just, I mean, we have that big bread basket that was created by bison, um, and that's the reason it's so fertile, but people just think, you know, farmers have been growing kale for millions of years, and that's why <laughs> we have uh, such amazing fertile land in the middle of the country. Well, that not that, um, I often quote... You know, say I'm going back three, say 300 years before there was, you know, invasion or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call. You know, there was colonization. Mm-hmm. There was 200 million bison running around North America. So yeah, Can the numbers are. That? Yeah, they don't really know. It's anywhere from 30 to 90 million. But then we also had uh, deer and elk and all these. So we actually have you know largely gotten rid of the wild animals we still have wild bits in the u.s but not that much uh so we don't have more methane emitting animals running around in the u.s than we did before we eradicated and colonized everything um we've just replaced them with cattle so the the methane is like not a thing 
Mm. Um, that's yeah. and the, uh, that's such a simple thing. Like numbers, let's just, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a one-for-one one or you're trying to do some maths around it, like they're not here anymore. There's a replacement methane-producing animal. So, you know, it's actually, it's, 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 it's no more methane getting pumped out there. You right. Know, since all this industrialisation and all this population growth and all these nasty things we're doing to the environment and animals. Right. And we know that, you know, the industrial revolution and, um, you know, the, the beginning of burning coal and, and then oil, that carbon dioxide that is from, and methane that's, that's from those fossil fuels directly relates to the global warming that we've been seeing. And that is introducing brand new greenhouse gas molecules into the environment where cattle are just cycling. Um, and a lot of people a lot of politicians, no politicians actually understand that, which is really unfortunate, but cattle are just eating carbon and grass. They break it down in their stomach and emit methane, but then after 10 years, that methane oxidizes into water and carbon dioxide that then becomes the water cycle and the photosynthesis process. So it's it's a circle um, where, again, fossil fuels are just pumping it's one way. It's it's a one way street. And the the, the um, uh, um, Walter Yenner, who mm-hmm. is, I think he's coming this weekend, mm-hmm. isn't he? I think so. He's a. Le- Have you met Walter? Mm-mm. Oh, he's fantastic. He's got this great yarn. Um, I've got a video somewhere, and I often quote um, that the methanobacter. You know, there's bacteria that sort of exist in the atmosphere above. You know, in grazing grazing in grasslands that are sort of active and functioning. That gobble up a lot of the methane anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's that carbon. The carbon after it breaks down becomes the grass, becomes the roots, gets fed to the bacteria and the fungal networks that uh, they then exchange those sugars, the carbon for the nutrients that plants need in order to grow, and so. Up to 40% of that can get sequestered, but then we also have, you can build new soil on top of it. So uh, soils can never truly be saturated because you can just keep on building new soil. Um, So again, no politicians are getting this. And this gets back to what I mentioned that's going on in Brazil. So, you know, we've got more feedlot finishing happening there, but then in Ireland, you know, over a million head of cattle are now on the chopping block and likely to... Um, go out of commission. Um, there's there's a policy on the table that um, I don't know if it's truly like in place yet, but that they're talking about it. And the reality of that is that demand for animal source foods is not going to go down. It just means that more business is going to go to Australia, New Zealand, and Brazil, and we're just going to see more Irish farmers out of work, right? And then. In Wales, we've got people buying up useful farmland for carbon credits and taking it completely out of food production. And then also the planting of trees. We see that in Wales and in New Zealand. So taking really good pasture land, planting pine trees and taking that out of food production to offset the methane from cattle. And I was sitting there in New Zealand at these conferences just saying, I can't believe this is happening and you need to stop this. Like, absolutely stop it. 
Because it's terminal, isn't it? A tree will will sequester carbon to a point, and then there's carbon in the timber. But then that's that's there's, and there's some cycling that continues. But it's not as though the tree, the life of the tree, it continues cycling a decent amount of carbon. And all the soil, it's 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 often, you know, detrimentally affecting if it's especially it's radiated pine in, in monoculture. It's like it's a it's total monoculture. Dead. It's um, closed canopy, <clears throat> so no grazing can happen. I mean, at least if you're gonna plant trees, plant native trees that grazing can happen, um, which they've actually, when I was at some of these places in Sao Paulo state that, um, were these test sites, they found that there was actually more, um, biodiversity and activity in the soil in the silva pasture than in straight pasture or in rainforest in Brazil. So that action of, you know, and also it gives the cattle shade, like it's an awesome thing, um, but we just have to be planting the right trees and we need to be giving some space around them. And I mean, unfortunately, like these farmers in New Zealand, they don't even have support to, you got to protect the trees, right? Like it's easier for them to just fence it off, plant all the trees, take that land out of production and like check that box because they're strapped for time and labor. And so it's a mess. And, and what what frustrates me somewhat is a lot of people talking about reducing emissions, whether it's cars in the street. I mean, that's a whole other thing I've been banging on for for the last couple of months is like electric cars. Mm. Don't get that. Rare earth metals, that's a whole other bag. And they're not using leather, which is, you know, because to be more sustainable yeah, so when that's the only sustainable piece of a car yeah. is the leather. So they're going to, I mean, where's, where's, where's the fake leather come from and all the plastics? Well, it comes from fossil fuels. Right. An, and then where does the, where do the electric charge cars get charged from? I mean, what, that's power Coal. coming from somewhere. It's like, <laughs> right. oh, I can't, I can't believe it. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But so many people are talking about the reducing emissions, <clears throat> you know, uh, in, in urban situation, um, agriculture, and and that has its merit, right? You know, if it's sort of done thing, I've got a whole, I want to start with wind farms and, and a lot of mm. that sort of stuff. That's another thing. But um, what these very outspoken activists, people who are smart, you know, obviously got the time and the and the and the, and the wherewithal to to be very loud and proud about reducing emissions, good for them uh, most of the time, unless they're being on about electric cars. Is what about the missing the whole other part of it? Isn't it? But there's a whole part of the let's address this so-called problem. Agriculture is like no, 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 too touchy. I've got too many followers that are vegan, or I've got too many. That's just too hard. I don't get. I can't understand it. It's like no, it's actually pretty simple. Right. So not only do I go around kind of helping farmers just be able to better articulate, you know, the benefits that they're doing, but I go to health conferences and I help nutrition people, influencers understand the environmental piece because they need to be defending meat and they are nervous because they can't articulate or they, or they just don't want to get involved. Like, and honestly, there's, there's not a lot of money in promoting, um, nutrient dense food. Like there's not, yeah. Well, I guess it's so unmanufactured that there's, there's not, you know, the other process stuff is lots of hands and there's lots of opportunities for people to make money from that. Right, which, I mean, so then we could talk about, well, who's really driving this anti-meat narrative? Should we talk about that? Or we talk about farming. No, 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 I'm no farming. It's all related, so let's yeah. let's do that narrative. Agendas, who's right. doing it? Right, Who are these people? I mean, 
companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. Do I have to draw those shutters so we don't get shot? There's not a sniper <laughs> over there ready just to. I don't know. We have a lovely us. sunset right now. It though. is nice, actually. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. You know, you don't. Get it's it. kind of shining on the windows of the building. It is. I can't quite hear the roar of the of the Coliseum that is uh, State of Origin just yet. I'm not sure what time it kicks off. Yes, who is it? Who are these people? What's what's driving all this kind of stuff? Well, I'll talk about it a lot in the, um, well, not a lot, a little bit in the presentation that I'm giving at RCS, but um, there's a lot of money to be made in ultra-processed fake meat foods, and um, they have this built-in guerrilla marketing militia of people who are ethically opposed to eating meat. And actually, the, the CEO of Impossible Foods, Pat Brown, has said that he wants to eliminate all livestock production. And they, they have no, um, no worries about what this would do on rural economies, on the nutrition status. I mean, Beyond Meat just got accused of, of lying about their protein content. They can't even come close on nutrition, right? They can't. And you know, I read somewhere the other day, someone was bound about glyphosate in, um, was, has been found in quite a few of the oh, sure. similar kind of, you know, Impossible burgers or mm-hmm. whatever they're called. Yeah, and 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 that's why I think there's this over. Um, I call it carbon tunnel vision, where they can't win on water cycles, on biodiversity, on overall ecosystem function, on um, rural communities, on um, workers' rights, uh, anything like that. They can win on carbon emissions if you just look at emissions instead of carbon cycling. And so that's why the world is overly focused right now. And, and all these governments are having this knee jerk. We have to reduce carbon emissions. It is 100 percent driven by these ultra processed food companies that are making a lot of money on the stock market. Um, not really. I, you know, I, I, their, their sales are not um, meeting projections, but they, there's a lot of investment right now. And it is um, they've been calling it the, the, the billion dollar prize. If we can just pin meat as evil. Yeah, the villain. Yeah. They can get it up a lot. So that's where it's coming from. But, you know, um, in my book, I go into the origins of of this anti-meat narrative, and it it has some religious origins. It's got some animal rights origins. There's a whole fear of death and not not admitting that you can't have life without death. And, And we're really disconnected right now from food production and from from death overall. Like I know only about 30% of Americans have a will. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. Um, but everybody, everything, everybody is somebody's lunch, basically. That's a, that's a children's book that I saw on Amazon. What's it, it called? <laughs> everybody's <laughs> somebody's <laughs> lunch. <laughs> I saw a great meme today. Um, I can't think of it. John Schultz might have sent it to me. And it said, plants are actually farming us, mm. you know, and um, and supplying um, oxygen until we die, and then they're just going to consume us. <laughs> Fungus too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It yep. was fantastic. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, 
a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I was going to ask you about the um, the narrative there. I've, that'll come back to me. But I do want to, I guess for those who are... Um, I try not to debate, argue any, any of this because it's just re- reasonably... Oh, I remember what it was. I'm going to go back to that one. Um, it, what sort of tips have you got for... If someone wants to kind of step into a... A scenario is it, is it, I mean, it's like all, having Thanksgiving dinner, <coughs> your you know, that that sister in law, yeah, maybe, that's, maybe that's it. So it's kind of in a right safe environment where it's not going to get to a hand. But if one wants to I make some know, salient points, kind of unsafe, those are actually the worst, right? <laughs> well, there wouldn't be turkey at the table, would there? Well, or maybe more that or that. There's always, I mean, yeah, that's a big joke is like one person's gluten free, one person's dairy free, you got the vegan, and like, what well, do you guys have Thanksgiving here? You don't have no, Thanksgiving, no. okay, but you know what I mean, we know, yeah. Okay, it's like yeah. big family dinners. Totally. Yeah. Okay, Christmas, right? Um, well, I try not to engage. Uh, and even on my social media, even though I'm poking um, and, and quite um, out, out front with my views, if I get negative pushback, I just block and delete. So, yeah. um, so I don't walk around with like, you know, ask me about meat t-shirt. On, although I've thought about <laughs> <laughs> making some, um, but, but I love I, meat. Changed my mind. <laughs> you know, I have uh, I have some vegan friends, and I respect that. You know, there's there's certain meats I feel weird about eating. So, um, like guinea pig, I, I would have a hard time. Um, dog. Yeah, I think I would have a hard yeah. time eating a dog. Um, so I get that that people for whatever reason don't want to eat animal foods. What my problem is, is telling other people that they shouldn't. And so like in the U S in New York city, we have, um, vegan Fridays and meatless Mondays. I was going to ask you about that actually. So that's my problem. And it's not just, Oh, what's, what's the big deal with giving the kids a salad on Fridays and Mondays. Right. Cause that's some people think, oh, my gosh, why are you so radical? Why can't you just, you know, they don't have to eat meat every single meal. But 70 percent of these kids are low income, 10 percent are homeless. And so they're coming from food insecure homes and lunch might be the only or the best meal they get all day. And we know that that kids need the iron, the protein and the B12 that um, meat has. Mm-hmm. And the only study we have on meat versus less meat was done on kids. It was done in Kenya. And there was one group that got a meat snack at school, one group that got just extra calories, and then one group got milk. And then there was a control group that didn't get any snack. And um, the meat group did the best on test scores, um, academics, um, behavior, and physically. So we, we know that including meat, for the meals of kids, especially for nutritionally at-risk kids, is a good thing. 
But we've got the mayor of New York virtue signaling saying that, you know, I, I he cured. I don't know if he was like diabetic or something, but he claims he's a vegan, even though he's not really a vegan. But he he's well, been seen eating things. Exactly. Yeah, I've seen, I've he's been seen. Seen eating a slipping into a bit of salmon or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just think it's it's really um, a privilege to be able to push away nutritious food that you shouldn't be pushing. And especially when you look at um, the typical foods kids eat, right? Like sandwiches, um, burgers, chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, like telling kids that meat is bad. What are they going to do? They're not going to go get like a $15 kale, chickpea, hemp seed, acai bowl or whatever. They're just going to like, Go get some hash browns or... go to Right, go to Subway and get a sandwich without meat in it. Yeah. Right. Um, and they have uh, Meatless Monday's campaign has a propaganda uh, posters that, that you can download from their website saying, you know, livestock is worse than all of transportation for greenhouse gases. Um, Which is bollocks. It's, that's wrong. It's a lie um, that, uh, you'll save your kidneys if you, if you just don't eat meat, which is also, there's never been any evidence to show eating meat causes kidney disease. Um, but these things are up in the schools all the time. And so I just think it's wrong to, to like virtue signal that to children. So what, what's behind the, I mean, he's, he's saying that he's vegan and he was probably, you know, cured from something or other because he ate plants. I mean, is there some, he's in a position of of power. I mean, he's on the take, is he? Or is he, what's, what's, I mean, you may not know that personally, but in terms of the motivation for people to uh, run with that, um, that story, I mean, is, is that a, is that, is that, are they getting paid to do that? No, I think he, I want to think that he really does think he's doing a good thing. But he's just not reading. He's just not informed. Well, and his version of plant-based like there's nothing wrong with eating fresh fruits and vegetables, and you're definitely going to. And you're not probably, saying that, are you? So like you're no. going carnivore, full carnivore, and you no. can't have. No, that's right. I mean, I think it's it. funny and interesting that there are people that are only eating meat. Um, I don't advocate that everyone go carnivore. I think it's fascinating that these people aren't getting scurvy and 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 they're curing things. And um, you know, I I don't judge them. That's that's cool that it works for them. Um, but I. I also think eating fruits and vegetables is generally a good thing. Um, we probably eat a little too much fruit. Yeah. Um, it should stick more to the leafy vegetables. Uh, but um, he probably just cut down on junk food and alcohol, which is what most people do when they go vegan. Um, they eliminate not only meat, but they take out sugar, processed foods, and alcohol. They probably start exercising a little bit more. They join a community, which we know is a good thing. Um, so it's 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 not all these other meat. things, yeah, yeah. They like to just pin it. And go there, you go. Um, Aaron McKenzie, who I interviewed some a couple of years ago, it might have been last year. He's a fitness machine in Sydney. He spent nine months and he ate um, one steer, everything. That was all he ate mm-hmm. for nine months and a couple of sheep. And he'd chop it up and he'd put in, freeze it, and he'd have, he'd sort of pull enough out for three days and he had all the the um, fifth quarter, you know, the internals yeah. and he had everything. And he'd lost weight, but he's all his 
mark has improved. It was yep. fascinating because I think you, I don't think it was uh, arthritis, maybe it was arthritis, but he had maybe a bit of skin condition, a bit of that, so it was fascinating. And he said yeah. he, he did it just as an experiment because he's that kind of guy. He said, I'm going to do this full on. And he was, he thought it was really good for what it sort of showed him. He didn't continue because he, mm. he's, you know, muscle guy and he's lost lost a lot of, you know, condition, but he was healthy as, you know. Mm. It was just a, just a choice he made. Yeah, Sean Baker, I'm friends with him. He's, he's like 54. Can you get him? Can I interview him? Yeah. Oh, he'd love to talk to you. Yeah. He's really nice. I'm, I know. Well, I sent something to him the other day, like some Instagram thing, and he commented. I went, no way. Sean Baker commented. It was cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll put him, he's on the list. You know, I'm going to make a note here in the show notes. I had one nutrition patient that um, we talked about what would work for her. She was a compulsive overeater. So these these folks, I've, I've been to Overeaters Anonymous meetings. I don't know if you have those here, but they're like Alcoholics they're Anonymous. Nice, yeah. um, so as a dietetic student, I, I sat through one just because I wanted to observe and, and see what everyone was talking about. And... Um, largely what they do is cut out white, they call it white foods, um, Mm. but they're really triggered by um, cake mixes and breads and pasta and sugar things, you know, white, white stuff. Um, And so a lot of compulsive overeaters, they just need to just stick with foods that aren't easy to binge on. Um, Anyhow, this one woman that was, I was working with, on her own volition decided I just want to see what would happen if I only ate meat and she lost 60 pounds in three months Mm. and that's like um bit under 30 kilos it's oh right you have the whole kilo thing like boot trunk I know yeah it's a boot over here not a trunk (laughs) that's it Um, for now you're excused it's your first you've only been here like five hours isn't it (laughs) um so you know she was working with me I'm not the one who told her you know she volunteered Mm. to to do that um and it was just easier for her because it just really limited her choices it's really hard to overeat like chicken right or or steak and it's so low calorie and so satiate protein is the most satiating food we can eat um so you're so full and it's actually quite low calorie um and so even even with uh, other folks that are having problems not feeling full just upping their protein intake a little bit especially from meat because it has so much nutrition in it um will make them feel fuller longer so especially for women my age um what um, twenty five? Right. Yeah. No, um, oh, sorry, twenty. That was rude. <laughs> uh, they're just they're they're like moody and um, and you know maybe have a little extra weight that they don't want and they're hungry often and just eating a little more protein will just make them feel so much better. And also, there's that um, the biochemistry, the 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 the, the gut flora mm-hmm. and dare I say fauna, uh, that is sending messages essentially to, you know, like as their populations increase, they want more of that food and they're like this amazing interchange and, 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 and it's, I was, I was again referencing Sheree Gooding the other day and it was almost like parasitic. There's this, this going, give me more bread, give me more pasta, give me more. Yeah. It's this sort of, um, I can't think what the word she used, it's like this, Appetite regulation. Uh, So I'm so fascinated by this um, idea of appetite regulation and all the hormones that get kind of whacked out when um, we overconsume processed foods because um, 
there's really smart people making sure you can't eat just one of these chips or whatever it is. Uh, so when, so that's why when you eliminate that kind of stuff where there was like a person that was like making this beautiful flavor combination, especially, um, fat and carbohydrate together. And then you add a little salt or sugar to that. Mm. Um, if you just kind of get rid of all that and just stick with meat and vegetables, it's really hard to go crazy on broccoli and steak or chicken and lettuce. Or I'm happy whatever. to try. <laughs> but it was also, it's, as Drew was saying, you just don't buy You just don't put it in the shopping trolley. You just don't go in the middle of the supermarket. You do the outside. Yeah, and if you're still having dairy, mm-hmm. generally that's where they are on one side, then mm-hmm. there's the fruit and veg on the other, mm-hmm. and at the back there's the meat. It's like don't go in the middle. Let's get the toilet paper maybe, but that's about all you go in the middle there for. Yeah, so for anyone listening, just you could just try it for 30 days. What's the worst thing? You go 30 have days. Have you got a program that, that they can get onto? Can I, I give, actually can have, I plug that? I didn't even think to do that. That's well, how I, horrible that's I am one of my jobs. myself. Um, I have a course called Sustainivore. Sustainable. I didn't even know that. Sustain. I, I bought sustainable.com. Get out of it here. That's awesome. So um, what? Oh, so sustainable.com. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so they could, they could read my book, Sacred Cow, and in the back of it I have a little diet challenge in there. Or they could take my course, Sustainable, which is at sustainable.com, and um, I walk them through what to eat, and then I explain why. And I go through regenerative agriculture and ethics and all of it in the course. Mm. So it's 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 uh, nine or ten modules long, and it's really awesome. And I teach people how to track their their food intake and their nutrition, their nutrient intake. Like they can find out how much iron they're eating. Really cool. You've just given me an idea. It was it was it's building on an idea I've already got. Thank you for you, that. I'll welcome. tell you what that idea is offline when no one's listening. Okay. <laughs> um, tell me, tell me. I'm sticking back. I'm going back to the food thing because as I, we were chatting away when I was setting up for the second time this afternoon, um, for me, and I've said it before that things you know. Everything in life comes back to food, farming, environment, and human health. It all sort of intertwines, and that's kind of the pillars that I talk about. Um, where the hell does crickets fit in there? Oh, I don't love it. I, I've seen cricket production. Have you ever seen, like, images of, of, of cricket? I've, I've seen the dried ones. Okay, yeah. but, like, have you seen how they live? No. They're like these little cardboard, um, like... Horrible housing complexes. Right. And it's, it's like tiered feedlotting for crickets or something. Yeah. Good. It's not like they're free range just hopping around in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> fed um, what? What are they fed? So, I, and uh, probably monocrop grain, mm. right? Or, or industrial waste. I, I don't know. But I think they could have a place, like insects can have a place maybe in, you know, animal, you know, chicken feed, in monogastric feed. Um, chickens and pigs, uh, because what they're eating is pretty awful. Like even feedlot beef is a million times better than regular industrially produced chicken or pork. Pork, Like those are the worst, worst, worst. What are they feeding them? So largely soy and corn. Um, these animals live a hundred percent of GMO. A lot of it's GMO now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're 100% indoors their whole lives. And, um, I mean, chickens, those chickens, if you don't slaughter them by five weeks, they're going to die of a heart attack anyway. They're so big. They're so awful. Mm. Um, so at least with cattle, 
if they're finished on a feedlot, a lot of people don't know that they spend their the majority of their life is outdoors. And even when they're on a feedlot, they're upcycling like their whole diet is not just corn. They're they're upcycling um, crop residue and and other kind of food waste um, that we can't eat, or others other other animals may not right eat yeah. right. So you know we can improve all that. We can improve feedlot conditions. We can and and not all feedlots are evil. I've I've been to some like pretty cool feedlots actually where the animals are fine. Mm. They're walking around. They're outside. Um, that is not the case with chicken or pork. And red meat is more nutritious, actually, than um, chicken and pork. I read something oh, not years ago, some years ago, but that, that pork fat, and I'm, I'm thinking about good pork fat, so not yeah. one that's full of toxins and God knows what else, but mm-hmm. that pork fat is, and I'm going to use the word better, and that's a bit vague, is is kind of a, a, a more... You know, more nutritious is probably not the right word either. Yeah. Than say beef fat or lamb fat. I don't, I don't know. I can't remember quite what the logic was there. Is that something you've heard before? I know that there's benefits to pork fat. Um, I it's good with steak when you cook it with steak. Yeah, I'm not afraid of fat, but I also don't like put loads of it on my food because it is also like a great way to just increase your calories. And, you know, a lot of people are going to like freak out when I say this, but at the end of the day, I don't want to eat a lot of extra calories because that's going to make me gain weight. And so, um, I stick to just like a nice piece of usually red meat or fish, um, and some veggies and, that's pretty much what I stick to. Keep it simple. I just want to go back to the ethics there before. Yes. Um, what I there's a wonderful book um, by an author called Matt Evans, and he's in Tasmania, and he was a food critic. He's a chef, lovely guy. I've interviewed him briefly last year, and he's written a book called On Eating Meat. Mm-hmm. Have you read it? Mm-mm. Was I going to send that? I was going to send that to you. Oh. You know what? If I went back through my Instagram feed, I reckon I was going to send that to you. How rude that I didn't. Anyway, I'm going to make sure you get a copy. Okay. He might, oh, no, would he be here? No, he wouldn't be. And it's fascinating. He's very diplomatically, maybe it's the wrong word, right word to use, but methodically stepped through the whole thing. Ethical. Ethical, environmental, nutritional, the whole the okay. whole thing. Fascinating. And he's a farmer. He's, a pig, he's got fat pig farmers. He's, he's his farm down in Tassie. Okay. He's all about eating meat and doing it ethically. And one of the most salient points I read in that book was if it's about suffering, right? So ethics is around our suffering, you know, the mm-hmm. animals are slaughtered and blah, blah, blah. Then isn't the remove, isn't, isn't about the sort of the, the quantum of suffering, if we can reduce the amount of suffering in the world, you know, per animal kind of thing. Because it's like, you know, it, as, as people say, what's, what's more sentient or what's, what's, you know, what should we be more worried about, a, a fluffy cow or a fluffy cat? You know, oh, yeah. You know, that whole thing. Oh, the bunny, oh, it's okay. Um, but he, so he makes the point that if it's about suffering and a whole lot of people are running around going, releasing chickens out of enclosures and then oh, they're yeah. getting eaten by foxes like, or stealing goats and putting them in their right. units in Melbourne and then they're dying and all right. this ridiculous activism stuff, I have to say, um, if it's about what they need to do what they would really make an impact on in terms of suffering in Australia, I'm talking about Australia, is if the removal of feral cats. Because mm. every night there's hundreds of thousands of marsupials, native animals, birds, and daytime, day and night, <clears throat> that are not just 
killed but tortured in that process, right? Yeah, cats are not humane. No. So, so he's saying, well, if you want to make an impact, stop releasing chickens that get eaten by foxes anyway or stealing goats or, or sort of trying to shut down beef industry. Go and remove all the feral cats from, from, from Australia, you know, and that's where you're actually going to have it make a difference in removing and reducing suffering. And I'm thinking, that's a great point. And I thought, hang on, like cats are fluffy and cute. Mm. Like are there vegans or people who have a problem with people eating meat who own cats? Mm-hmm. There are. There are. And what do they feed them? They feed them meat? Well, they're hypocrites. If they feed them grainy biscuits and stuff, well, that's inhumane because well, they're not supposed to eat it. So I actually interviewed a vegan for my film. We ended up not using her interview because she was just so simplistic and it didn't it didn't read well. Like it was, it almost looked like I was just sort of making fun of her. So we just didn't ah, include her. Good call. Yeah. But she had a cat on a leash, and we actually filmed her walking her cat on her leash on the leash. Um, but her excuse was that, well, I rescued the cat. I didn't breed the cat. I didn't, you know, I just, I'm just taking care of this cat. And so I understand that it needs this diet. Of meat. Of meat. Right. Right. So, yeah, I, wa- I, I think. Um, Where do you go with that? <laughs> the least harm kind of argument is definitely um, laudable. Mm. But actually, um you know, I just had someone bring this up to me at the end of my presentation in London, um, which the video just came out. So I'll send you a link to that Do video because it was really great. London video. Yeah. yeah um, cool. But she at the at end. At a conference, was it? Yeah, at the Health Optimization Conference. So awesome. it was like biohackers. Oh, yeah. It was really cool. Was Dave Asprey there? He was not. Why not? Because um, it wasn't his conference. It, he was there the year before and he was not there this year. Right on. Yeah. Tell me. Hmm. What? Yeah. This, he's not going to listen to this. Yeah. Don't, a, don't, don't a, be offended. I'm not a huge... You're not a big fan? No. Why is that? Can you say? Uh, it, there's a lot of things that he says that aren't don't have great evidence to back it up. Because what I appreciate about you, Diane, is you are always evidence-based, which is I totally support. Mm. Yeah, okay, cool. Okay, we'll get off Dave. He wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but you were, and the video came out. And, and the video came out. And um, and right after my talk, there was a woman, a vegan, in the audience who raised her hand, and she said, well, why don't we just let them die a natural death? Right. The, the, the animals. Cows. Yes. Uh-huh. And um, I asked her if she had ever seen National Geographic um, because natural death is not a beautiful uh, close your eyes situation. Die in a paddock um, of, you know, daisies. And no. so in the film, um, one of the, uh, Lear Keith talks about, well, if we're, if we're going to accept that death has to happen for life, like even, even in these plant-based burgers, you have to annihilate an entire ecosystems in order to make the fields and they're spraying and insects are dying and the birds are dying because they have no food and all this stuff. So let's just admit that death happens and you want to cause the least amount of harm possible then the death that happens for you to live should be the death that increases life. Mm. Which means the only truly sustainable, regenerative, ethical, least harm diet is one where you're consuming large herbivores that were raised in, in a like regenerative way. Because um, there's, there is value... There's not value is probably the wrong word, and we talk about life, but there's, as you say, there's like 
the uplifting or the continuation or the, dare I say, sac- not sacrifice necessarily, but it's the continuation of life. Death has, has supported, you know, life going forward and whether there's death of life and vice versa. Um, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But why? Oh, look, no, I'm not, I'm not going to continue about that because it's not something that, we just go in circles, isn't it? Yeah. It is one of those things, and you're probably so over it. Tell me about one thing I do want to talk about, which is a um, getting back to, we're going to stick on that for a minute, is the water use. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the water use thing, the water use argument for and against. Sure, yeah. People will say that cows use 10 bathtubs full of water. You're, oh, no, not cows. A quarter pound burger, so whatever that is in your weird Australian metric system. <sighs> How rude! Couple of hundred, quarter pounds, a quarter pound. Whatever. What's your like average burger grams. size? Okay, hundred pounds, hundred grams. So your hundred gram burger about um, uses, you know, ten ten bathtubs full of water in order to create that burger. That's what they'll say. That's what Meatless Mondays has their posters in the school saying. Which makes people think like, oh, that's got to come from somewhere, and it's that's been it's stealing water stealing from 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 babies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's not really fair um, because the largest part of the water footprint of cattle is actually what they call green water. So there's blue water and green water and gray water. So uh, green water is the water that's already in the environment. So like the moisture in grass is green water. So like when you eat vegetables, like you eat a cucumber and it's like 98% water, right? So that's the idea that grass has all this water already in it and the cattle are eating it. Um, so it's going to be grass whether or not that cow eats it. And anyway, so the 97% of grass-fed beef, the water footprint is actually just from the grass. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, um, and then they are drinking some water. So blue water is the type of water that's in like lakes and aquifers and irrigation, like the water that you look down on a map and you see surface it's blue, water. Yeah. surface water um, and aquifers. Mm. And um, a very, very, very small amount of blue water goes into beef. And that's because largely they're not eating things that needed to be irrigated. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the area. You know, if it's a rainier place, there's maybe no blue water at all. Um, a more dry place, they, it might require a little more irrigation. But it's still, the, the benefit of cattle is that they're actually improving the water holding capacity of the soil. So it, it gets back to that carbon idea again. It's not just like they're sucking water and the these like blimps that are just like, blowing up from water they're actually moving moisture around the farm through their manure and also their hoof action is like making the water that comes down from the sky more able to penetrate into the soil if there's more carbon in the soil it can hold more water to begin with um in the film we show hard pan so you guys are probably pretty familiar with that Mm -hmm. here in really arid areas uh the it's almost like there's a layer of uh, asphalt or concrete or whatever, something really hard, salt sometimes um, on the surface that water can't even penetrate when it rains. But if you have animals that are moving around on that, they can break up that hard pan and actually allow the rain to get into the soil to um, 
fertilize this dormant seeds in there that will actually become more plants. And while they're hoofing away there, they're urinating and dumping out the back too. So there's all that fertility cycling in the whole, the exactly. whole thing. So someone decided, let's see how much water a, 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 a cow um, consumes and then turns into a patty and let's divide it by the number of patties and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of a convenient way to do it, isn't it? It's like, you know, like, oh, it's just to go, look how much water this patty sort of took up from I, the environment. Like, is it, that's a, ni- that's a nice yeah, way to simplify it. I mean, that's the problem with all of this, the water, the land use. Like, oh, we could grow this many tomatoes pumpkins, on that. Yeah. Pumpkins. Mm. Um, well, you call them squash. You call them yeah, squash over We there? have pumpkins. Do you? The, the orange things. Yeah, the big ones. Yeah. You, you, you wouldn't have the Queensland blue, though. We have a blue Hubbard. I wonder if it's the same. Yeah, is it like, like a really dark green? Well, the one we have is like a sage blue and it kind of has like these wart things looking at. Yeah, uh, yeah. similar. No, yeah. this is like a dark green, almost like that green there. Oh, we have ones that look like that that are small. Bet you they're not cool. But Americans don't really like to eat them. Really? Yeah, we don't eat pumpkin that much either. So the, you carve them out for Halloween? That's pretty much the only use for pumpkin in the really? US. Yeah. And But you eat squash, the smaller versions of pumpkin. Not a lot. There, there's not a lot of we, the zucchini. Yes, is mm. a common thing, but not, not the, well butternut squash. Maybe you have butternut cattle. Yeah, totes. We um, we cattle love pumpkin. So do sheep. Mm. Yeah, there you go. We should grow some. You know, we've I, I um, little digression here. I, some years ago, I planted a heap of pumpkin and collected boxes of seed to then soak in water and apple cider vinegar to make a drench for sheep. Oh. On the full moon. There you go. That's a little tip for you. Huh. Now, back to where we, how we get on the pumpkin. Um, land use. Oh, land use. You know, that's so right. So they just skew everything to their benefit, basically. Well, it's, it's just like, it's just an isolated go. Let's just look at this and not look at the rest. It's a bit like the transport thing, isn't it? That the, mm-hmm. the, the, the in, when they work out the emissions for agriculture, they're, they're trying to look at whole of life kind of stuff, but for the transport, it's not. They don't look at the manufacture of the truck and all of well, the. Well, those numbers just don't no, exist. That's right. They so don't. Want to, they, they don't want to find them. Yeah, it's convenient, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the um, Global Food Justice Alliance. Sure. See, you look at my notes there. I know that's something. Nice you know why I write so badly so no one can copy? <laughs> it's a thing from school. Um, well, uh, it's a nonprofit that I started, and I started it actually. Um, last summer when the, the, um, United Nations food system summit was happening in New York city. And I actually, uh, right before that went down to Washington DC and met with the Australian ambassador to the U S and the Australian ambassador to the UN. Who? I went to the embassy. When was this? This was uh, last summer. Hang on. So that was, that was 12 months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing. Yeah. Cool. Where yeah. was it in? In in the in the New York? In, in, no, in DC at the oh. Australian Embassy there. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And General Patton used to live in that embassy. So it, anyway, it was really really cool. Um, home. We had dinner there, and I was just talking to them about how to sort of defend meat um, and giving them all the different angles because uh, the the Secretary General of the United Nations has adopted the Eat Lancet diet as his, like, baby project. So that's his thing. Was, so did you say, was he there? Did you say he was there? No. He, the Secretary General of the United Nations was hosting a meeting in New York City. Yeah. And 
your ambassador to the UN mm. was going to go to that. Mm. And I went down to like give him some give pointers. Him, give some update. Yeah, right. He was <laughs> going to go toe to toe, was he? I hope so. Um, how'd, well, you, how'd you go? Did, did he? Did he? We, we, um, it, it went well. I, I think that um, the, the meat argument, I mean, now with the war in Ukraine, no one's going to be, I, I think the whole argument against meat for its uh, carbon emissions is really, people are just going to start focusing on, oh my gosh, we have to make some food. And a lot of this kind of like privileged talk about emissions and carbon footprints is going to go away. Sounds irrelevant. Bit, and we just need to like stop food riots, which are already starting to happen, like in places like Ghana. And so, uh, anyway, Global Food Justice Alliance. So, um, so this, uh, so I went outside of the. I went to New York City when the UN was having their food system summit meeting and I got this big truck and I called this a, a food truck that I that I, you know, we painted with um, meat for the planet, basically the Global Food Justice Alliance. And I'm using those words, Global Food Justice Alliance, to kind of talk about the equity implications of pulling meat away from people. So that's why I'm calling it that. Yep, cool. And we handed out meat on the streets to people, and we're just talking about the benefits of meat and what was going on with the United Nations. And so I've now, that's so that's why I started that organization. Um, and it's just grown since then. So that is my nonprofit that I'm able to take public donations for um, for my fight against the anti-meat narrative. Who's basically. on board with that? You know, some of your buddies over there or over here? or what? Who, who's sort of in the... Uh, in so your... Pran Yoga Yoganathan yeah. is on that. Um, oh, my gosh. We have over 100 doctors and dietitians. Uh, Nick Offerman, who was the... Um, Ron Swanson. <laughs> yeah, he was the narrator. Narrator yeah. of, my, fil- of yeah. my film. He's on board. Um, we've got, you know, Sean Baker, who we were just talking about the carnivore guy, he's on it. Uh, so it's, it's, um, basically all of the health professionals that I know that are pushing, uh, against this idea that we all need to go vegan for our health and the planet. Um, that's so cool doing the meat that reminded me of when midnight oil we were in new york years ago you know midnight oil yeah you know, they did, did, did on the back of a truck they did a basically a gig in the streets of new york oh. you just did it with meat oh. on the back of a truck really yeah totally they did it like in the late 80s or early 90s it was that was there's a great video check it out Wait, they use meat? No, nothing no, to do no, with no. meat. You're but, saying that but, but my saying using, using a truck I'm in the like streets and handing, they were handing out vo- like music, like as in the... the, the I get it, I get yeah, it, I no, get it. just reminded me of that. They, you guys love the oils, don't you? Yeah. When are we, when, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That Because well, I was in a, a mate in a car driving around the States in 19... Chris Reynolds, you might, hopefully you don't listen to these podcasts, I don't think. Um, 1994. Four, five, three, four. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, all we listened to was oils on the radio. It was fantastic. You love, you dig it. So that's really cool. So you were, you just went like that's a bit like a Hugh Ferling Whittingstall stuff, isn't it? Like he does the chicken stuff and he does the you know the 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 seafood, um, the bycatch or whatever it is. You mm-hmm, know, he does mm-hmm. a similar thing. That's awesome. Yeah. So did you get I, pushback? Do people go no? Like throw buckets of red paint on you or something? No. I mean, we were kind of. I didn't like let 
the world know that I was where I was going to be because I was a little anxious that we might get vegan protesters. I'd like to bring this to Berkeley, California, and that for sure we would. Um, but why we is that? Is that a bit of a hub? Oh yeah, really? that, that's that's is where. That? Yeah, it's. Um, we focused a little bit on on this one butcher shop in my film, Sacred Cow, and um, this organization, Direct Action Everywhere, which is one of the most um, militant anti-meat groups, um, pro-vegan groups in the U.S. And uh, they're the ones that really went after this butcher shop because it was small, because they could. Oh, and they're, they were sort of right around the corner from uh, their headquarters. But anyhow, so th- so we uh, with Global Food Justice, we have a website. We have a toolkit for schools and for um, cities that are going vegan, um, and that's really happening in the U.S. Um, mm. And we also just have all the information out there on why it's healthy, good for the environment, and important for food equity. So that's the real angle that I'm pushing with that. We're going to put that link in the show notes. I think that's fantastic. Um, now, one other thing, intellectual property, mm. food, mm-hmm. trying to kind of, um, I don't know, what are they trying to do? They're just trying to stop people from eating this because they want them to eat that, Get, whether it's about the crickets or the Impossible Burgers. Is that what's happening in the States? We haven't seen a whole lot of it over here, I don't think, but like basically coveting food. And, saying, and mm. wanting to own the entire process of mm. it. So Bill Gates is the largest landowner in the U.S. I was hoping when he was going to come up. Ah. Uh, um, Gatesy. Gatesy, we call him over here. Oh, yeah? <laughs> no, we don't. We just call him a tool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. Sorry, not he's, everyone. He's pretty anti-meat. He, he, you know, if he had his way along with Beyond Foods and Impossible uh, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, they would end all livestock production and have us all eating um biological goo basically mm, frankenfood um, and you know and and george mambiant would love that too so i was just in the uk and, and he's real big over there um he thinks that we all need to be eating biological goo as well and that livestock farmers should stop all production um and a lot of this is about owning the intellectual property and the corporatization of food and Again, we get into this like huge sort of food sovereignty ethical dilemma with all of this. I think that we need more regional food economies and less centralization. Um, and we're seeing that. I mean, even during COVID in the U.S., we had some really big holes in the meat supply because, um, you know, we only have about four companies that control the majority of our meat in the U.S., and um, we had some huge problems with that. So I don't know why, just from a food security perspective, governments aren't trying to push more regional food economies. But why would they do that? They wouldn't. There's no. What? What? what, yeah. what they're not motivated because as soon as the you know, if if they're localized food systems, then there's sovereignty. They don't want that stuff. They want sovereignty. Are you mad? And and then you have strong rural economies. That are less reliant on big box everything. Totally. They're never going to do it, are they? In Australia, they're sort of rolling out um, smart cities Mm. with a whole lot of, I mean, I'm not diving into the conspiracy world here. That's just a thing with 5G 5G and kind of 
social credit scores and mm. cashless societies and, I mean, that's a whole rabbit warren we don't need to go down, but it's really it's, – it, all of this stuff for me is kind of inter, inter, interrelated, you know, putting aside the people who are sort of front and centre, individuals in this, you know, there's a whole lot of – it feels like a whole lot of – I mean, the whole COVID thing for the last couple of years, that in itself has been a – a bit of a shit fight, really, <clears throat> and um, you know I think it's it's there's similar agendas going on um, with food, with health. You know, uh, probably the same people. I mean, Mr. Gates is clearly behind food and right. The, oh, sorry, isn't it Dr. Gates? Is that isn't he like a? <laughs> he'd well, like the to scary be a, thing is about all this is politicians only have to think four years ahead. Totally, but Google can think fifty, a hundred years ahead. Tesla can think that far ahead as well. So it's like, but it, 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 it's a little bit like collective collectivism, right? Mm. It's uh, get people off the land and control their food and then you can control them. Control their bank accounts by only having one credit card. You don't pay your fine when you're parking down the street. Then you can't go to the supermarket because it gets cancelled. I mean, the thing goes on and on and on. It's fascinating, fascinatingly scary. Yes, it is. <laughs> maybe we'll pick that up in another episode of this we can go down that rabbit hole yeah have you been down there have you been down the rabbit hole i i try not to yeah you know what i don't watch a lot of news or tv i'm saturated my brain is saturated and so i try really hard to avoid the rabbit holes because it happens too quickly for me, so I um, I actually just focus on mm. on what I need to do, and then when I'm off, I'm completely unplugged and like swimming in a pond or something like that. Like I I don't I don't engage with anything else because you can spend days mm-hmm. and weeks and months in that, and I don't know I don't know if it it, it can send people a bit batty. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and then they just don't get on with life. And there's some uh, somewhere there's a balance between being informed and and potentially panicking and just being totally ignorant. There's a nice thing down the middle, I think, right? Which I'm hoping to find. <laughs> uh, I think I found it. Um, foot and mouth, foot and mouth disease. Has mm. that been topical? So, well, you've only just been here a few hours, so you probably don't know. If you, you're aware that it's in Indonesia and everyone's going to Bali and coming back and there's concern about it might enter our shores. Yeah, I mean... By the time this goes out, we'll know either what we might know something or, or, or not, but worth chatting about now quickly. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know much about that. Um, I think that globalisation is a really dangerous thing for a lot of reasons. Um, so, no, I, I want to learn more about it. Tell me about foot and mouth disease. Well, foot and mouth disease being, um, it's a, I think it's a virus and it's basically, it hasn't been in Australia since 1879 or something. It's been in Asia. It's now as close as it is in Indonesia. A lot of Australians are, Bali is one of the favourite, you know, Holiday destinations now that the borders are open and people mm. are willy nilly, so they, I think it's it's born it's it's sore born, and it's um, so it in it was um, was it foot and mouth I know it was mad cow in the eighties in the UK I think it was maybe more recently and they had to slaughter millions of cattle and mm-hmm. pigs as well I think and sheep so that's the fear here if it gets across from Indonesia 
into Australia that could be, I read the other $100 billion hit to the Australian agriculture. I mean, it probably will, mm. right? I mean, how could it not? Well, this is the thing. I mean, they clo- they, the government, I was saying to someone the other day, the, the government was happy to close down the borders of the world, you know, until we'd got jabs and all that sort of stuff. Um, so they did that <clears throat> willy-nilly. Um, I'm thinking, why wouldn't they just go, okay, no one's going in and out of Bali for, let's just say, a couple of months. It's just, you know, precautionary approach, not unreasonable given they were happy to shut their world down, mm-hmm, you know, last mm-hmm. year, last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's still coming back, give them a good douse, wash their feet, leave them. People are saying leave your shoes in, in Bali. Um, don't go to farms, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I think some of those basic things would be sensible given there's a $100 billion industry that could be turned on its head. Um, yeah, what are, your, what are your politicians? I don't know what they're doing. I haven't heard. I don't, I don't think they're doing any of that. Again, I don't watch the TV. Oh, well, much. I have the number for your ambassador. Maybe I could give him a call. The, the, which, the UN one? Your Australian know. ambassador to the UN? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Mr. Ambassador? Yep. Expect a call. Um, well, that's because I, I don't know. I haven't heard. I would have thought they would have gone, right, this is what we're going to do because you know what happened in the um, the meat industry in a, the northern Australia. A lot of their cattle are specifically produced to be live exported to Indonesia. Hmm. Did you hear about this some years ago? Mm-hmm. It was about 20, 2010. I think it was 2010, 2011. And a film crew got into a slaughterhouse in Indonesia and videoed some slaughtering of animals, which was probably a little inhumane. Whether it was set up or not, there's not sure. Right. That hit the Australian media and within days that whole industry was shut down. Hmm. Cruelty to animals, ethical reasons, shut down. Like boats do not leave ports. Now guess what happened? Hmm. Hundreds of thousands of cattle up there which then, which were alive and eating grass, were destined for Indonesia, nowhere to go. What happened to them? What? They all died. A lot of them died. They ran out of grass. They couldn't sell them anywhere. Oh. So the whole industry was turned on its head because of some video footage of a slaughterhouse in Indonesia. They shut the whole thing down thinking, oh, we're going to save some animals and hundreds of thousands were died from starvation in the northern, northern Australia. That's awful. Can you believe that? Hardly, but yes. It happened. We're getting off track. Let's go to... Um, we might wrap it up because you know what I do next. I do a little quick Q and A. Okay. For our Patreon members. Sure. It's getting late. I've got a bit of a way to go. You need to go and get yourself a good Australian steak. Have you ever? Do you, have you eaten Australian steak? In I the just States? had some for lunch today. Okay. I had a flat iron steak. Where? Nearby. Up the street. You yeah. found a nice restaurant. Oh yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a nice restaurant, but it was awesome. It was good. It wasn't like white tablecloth or anything. No. But the steak was amazing. Was it yummy? Oh, so good. It was cooked Oh, I'm sure that's nothing. You just wait. You wait to come to... When next time you're out and you have to come down to our farm at Borua, okay? And I'll give you the best T-bones and flat irons you've ever had. No, all farmers are bang on about their own meat. Yeah. We're going to wrap it up. It's an hour and a half. Actually, it's more than that. It's an hour 45. We're going to do a quick Q&A. Okay. Then you need to go and... Freshen up and go and get another steak down the road. Uh, I, I bought some actually. I've got some here. I'm you got to cook them up. I bought lamb and uh, steak. 
Good for you. Got some ribeyes and some lamb chops. Um, Diana, that was wonderful. For anyone who wants to hear the Q&A, you just have to jump on and become a Patreon member. It's only $10 a month and you get a weekly video from me. You get um, transcripts of all our um, uh um, episodes and you get a monthly webinar with one of our guests and one day it just might be Diana if I can work out the time frames um, so and you get a few other bonus things like that so come on dig in your pockets grab your 10 bucks a month it's like two crummy coffees and you get to listen to the Q&A that's coming up left it won't be might be too long because Diana needs to go and have some lamb and what was it <laughs> lamb and beef yeah um and I think I just want to make sure I've got no more questions from this main part. And we have can, covered so much ground. They can uh, join my Patreon and support my anti, anti-meat anti narrative busting energy awesome. um, and, and get access to ad-free podcasts on my So channel where will too. they find that one? Um, if they go to Sustainable Dish? I, I think... Think so. Is it on your website? Will they get links on the sustainable, sustainable? Uh, sustainable? Yeah, go to sustainabledish.com. See, this is how awful I am. Or globalfoodjustice.org. That's, oh, yep. that's the, um, that's my nonprofit. You'll be on there anyway. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Don. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And next week on The Regenerative Journey, my guest is Dr. Pran Yoganathan. Caught up with him here at Hannah Minow, uh, midway through one of our biodynamics workshops, which he um, attended. Uh, we, <laughs> I just love, there were truth bombs going uh, going off everywhere. Um, he had a, has a, such a wonderful um, understanding of the intersection between sort of food and farming and disease care um, and big pharma. And uh, we had a lovely chat. Could have chatted for a few more hours um, under a bit of a time constraint. Uh, maybe I'll chat with him again. But let's get through next week's episode with Dr. Pran Yagathon on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.